Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Hello, friends. Stephen here. I hesitated what to do about today's episode. I've decided to re-release the teaching talk we did on Luke 22 when Jesus tells his followers to buy a couple of swords. The reason that I've chosen this is clearly because of the massacres that we have seen taken place in the United States in the last few weeks. We had gunmen opening fire on black people in a supermarket. We've had a gunman opening fire on elementary age children in a school in Texas. We have had, and we will see and continue to see, endless massacres of gun violence by Americans for all sorts of different reasons against other Americans. This is an endless and apparently unsolvable problem for Americans. This is a topic that we are going to talk about perhaps in a future time, and I don't want to go into it too much and pontificate and bloviate. I think that the world doesn't need more of that. However, I have noticed that amongst the social media and Instagram type uh, ecosystems that I look in on from time to time, some listeners to the Tent podcast were recommending Tent Theology to their followers or to people they were having conversations with and so that uh, uh, caught my eye and that that there are some people out there saying that tent theology is is a a useful resource when it comes to christians imagination towards violence and war and guns so i thought that was something worth paying attention to that maybe this would be a good time to make it easy for listeners or new listeners to find some of that material The other thing I noticed, of course, was that inevitably, whenever there's any discussion about Christians and guns or Christians and lethal violence, there's always going to be somebody that brings up Luke 22. And there's these Christians that absolutely love the idea that Jesus said, go buy a sword. And then they will use that as their proof text or their justification in their enthusiastic embrace of AR-15s and handguns and atomic weapons and all the other weapons of mass human murder that we make and which Christians, especially in America, seem to love. They love wholeheartedly, with enthusiasm, with tears streaming down their face, with the sort of drive that you would associate with the necessities of life. We see Christians in America love guns in this way. And I will be frank, it makes me sick. It drives a lot of us who are not Americans to despair. It drives a lot of Americans to utter hopelessness and despair as well when they see their fellows, and especially their fellow Christians, being on exactly the wrong side of this issue. And not just the wrong side, but the wrong side with giddy, wild enthusiasm. This is, like I said, something we're probably going to talk about later. But for the moment, let's not talk about the present and the current events. Because, frankly, if I start talking about the events that happened in the elementary school or the supermarket last week, it will be outdated in two weeks' time, three weeks' time, or whenever it is the next mass murder will happen.
So I'm not going to talk about current events or the headline news. I'm going to talk about people and ideas and practices that were put into place 2,000 years ago. I'm going to talk about the primary text of the Christians, the cultural, political, social imagination when it comes to violence and weapons that the earliest Christians, the earliest followers of Jesus, recognized full well, but which, quite evidently, the current-day people who claim to be followers of Jesus have no time for whatsoever. So today we're going to look at the passage in Luke 22 where Jesus talks about buying two swords, and we're going to consider what that means. Listeners to the Tent podcast might be interested in some other episodes which we have done to talk about war and violence and weapons. And we've been going now for over a hundred episodes, so I'm aware that there's a backlog which people might not be aware of. So this is just a highlight to you. I will put this into the show notes of this episode as well, so do look at that. But if you're interested in these topics, you could start with episode three, where we talk what about war? You could look at episode five, where we talk about culture warriors and the warrior mindset, which is so much a part of modern day Christianity, especially evangelicals, especially American evangelicals. Issue uh, episode 11 talks about Romans 13. Romans 13 is all about the sword and wielding the sword and and what uh, the government does and what Christians do in response to that. That's worth paying attention to. Episodes 41 and 43 are a two-part discussion on violence, where we also have a conversation with Justin Bronson Berenger, who's an American peace theologian who pays attention to all the clobber passages and all the issues of violence and war that people bring up, especially in the New Testament. So that's episodes 41 and 43. Today we're going to listen to a reissue of episodes 45, which is about go and buy a sword. You might be also interested in episode 50, where I interview Shane Claiborne, who's a well-known American activist, a peace campaigner, theologian, and Christian leader. He turns guns into gardening tools, and we talk about that in episode 50. And most recently, in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, episode 103 is where we discuss Jesus telling his people to turn the other cheek. And we talk about violence there as well. So quite a bit of listening for you if you are interested in the Christian imagination towards weapons and violence and lethal violence against enemies. I hope that you find some of this useful and I hope that you are able to live at true and perfect peace. common response or knee-jerk reaction when you try and talk about violence and non-violence to Christians is that you will receive the apparent knockdown argument that why did Jesus then tell his disciples to buy two swords? And this will often be lobbed at you as if it's some uh, knockdown proof text for enthusiastically waging war and killing enemies and buying handguns and blowing your enemies away. Well, you may be surprised to hear that, in fact, the story 
leads to the exact opposite conclusion. The proof text of Luke 22 is not exactly the knockdown argument in defense of lethal violence that people who love lethal violence think it is. This is where we're going to have a look at Luke 22, verse 35 to 38. Jesus said to them, when I sent you out without a wallet, bag or sandals, you didn't lack anything, did you? They said nothing. Then he said to them, but now whoever has a wallet must take it and likewise a bag. And those who don't own a sword must sell their clothes and buy one. I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in relation to me, that he was counted amongst the criminals. Indeed, what's written about me is nearing completion. And they said to him, look, here are two swords. He replied, that is enough. So, so far, so clearly an endorsement of the use and brandishing of lethal weapons. Clearly, Jesus wants his disciples to be armed. He tells them to buy a sword and they come back with two. And he says, that is enough. I think the first thing to say to this is that on the surface, these three verses do look like an endorsement of using weapons. But the first thing I want to say is it is three verses against four Gospels. It is three verses against four Gospels which tell a story of a man who is super powerful, who has lots of followers, and who resolutely, time and again, refuses to use his power or send his followers into violent frenzies against their enemies. This is the story of a person who has the opportunity to call down fire on enemy villages, to bring angels into the mix to kill the Romans, to storm the temple to kick the foreigners out, when instead he storms the temple to let the foreigners in. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. He refuses to call down fire on his enemies and tells his disciples, rebukes them when they want to do it. He refuses to call down angelic hosts to rescue himself and def defeat the Romans. In fact, he submits to death, even death on a cross. He tells his people to turn the other cheek, to not seek an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, to go the extra mile when an enemy Roman soldier forces you to go one you should go two willingly with him to give money and clothes to anyone who asks to not clutch tightly to what is rightfully yours even when it is rightfully yours jesus tells people to flee to the hills rather than defend the temple he tells his followers that he's not the messiah who is a nationalist folk hero who's going to kill his enemies. In fact, he's the sort of Messiah that is going to suffer and die and that is going to heal the enemies and elevate them and eat dinner with them. Jesus is not a warmonger. And so when we find three verses that look like he might be one, our first thought should not be to elevate those three verses over everything else, it should be to wonder whether those three verses are part of the warmonger story or whether they're part of a different story altogether. The other thing I will quickly point out is that these three verses are not actually an endorsement of violence anyway.
And for this, we need to look at the wider context of the Gospel of Luke. The story here, of course, is that Jesus, he, he's on the way to the cross. The enemies are ranging against him. He's been marching across the land, starting a new movement, gathering people together in the name of the kingdom of God. And of course, he's now gathered also enemies as well as followers. The Pharisees, the high priests, and also the Roman governors are all noticing that Jesus is some sort of rival king. His movement is challenging to the powers that be, and they see it. So you have to notice that the context here of the Jesus movement is one that is overtly, publicly political. It is one that has to do with movements, kingdoms, leaders, kings. It has to do with the use of money and power, how you treat foreigners. The, the sorts of things that Jesus people are doing and seem to be doing belong much more in the realm of the socio-political than in the realm of the theological religious. Now, I said that I was going to start in Luke 22, verse 35, but in fact, unsurprisingly, we need to start further back. For example, if you look at Luke 22, verse 24, remember the movement of Jesus is ranging, it's getting popular, it's getting bigger, they're causing all sorts of unrest. The excitement is brewing. And there, an argument broke out among the disciples over which one of them should be regarded as the greatest. Because, of course, they're part of a movement that is moving from strength to strength. It's getting bigger and bigger. But Jesus said to them, The rulers of the Gentiles rule over their subjects, and those in authority over them are called friends of the people. But that's not the way it will be with you. Instead, the greatest among you must become like a person of lower status, and the leader like a servant. So which one of you is greater, the one who is seated at the table, or the one who serves at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. The disciples are jostling for positions of power, and Jesus says, Don't be like the Gentiles who lord their power over others. Don't be part of that insider-outsider, top-down heavy hierarchy, trickle-down power kind of way, way of thinking, domination way of thinking. And then over into verse 35, just to continue the theme here, Jesus says to the disciples, remember the disciples who've been arguing about who's most powerful, who's going to have power, which by the way is a, something the disciples do all the time in all the Gospels. This is a, a main theme of theirs, and it's clearly a lesson that the Gospels want us all to learn, that we shouldn't be like the disciples. So Jesus says to these disciples, When I sent you out without a wallet, a bag, or sandals, you didn't lack anything, did you? Do you remember he sent out the disciples into villages two by two? And they said, No, we didn't lack anything. Then he said to them, But now, whoever has a wallet must take it and likewise a bag. And those who don't own a sword must sell their clothes and buy one. I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in relation to me, and he was counted among criminals. Indeed, what's written about me is nearing completion. So now Jesus is getting ready to move into a different stage of his ministry, or he's setting up the disciples to become ambassadors for his kingdom in a way they haven't been yet. And he's going to send them out. And there's an obvious, there's an obvious thing here is that the appearance of the disciples is the important thing. He wants them to look the part of the role that they are playing. And he tells you clearly, I want you to be counted amongst the criminals. 
He tells them, I want you to bring a bag. I want you to bring uh, a, a bag of money. I want you to look like a wandering traveler whose, whose house is on his back. That everything you've got, everything you own is on your person. You are a wandering person. You do not have a settled, permanent, fortified home anymore. I want you to look like one of those kinds of people. And then he says you should have a sword. And he tells you very distinctly in Luke why you should have a sword. I tell you that this so that the scripture can be fulfilled in relation to me, that he was counted amongst the criminals. The quote is from Isaiah 53. But the word we want to look at here is the criminal word. The word is leistes. And they were a type of bandit, or perhaps a better word would be an outlaw. And here I want to, to think of not house robbers or not street thugs, but outlaws. Robin Hood and his band of merry men. People living on the fringes, kicked out of powerful places of power and living in the wilderness. Living in the forests. Robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. The word leistes here is a word that was associated with Galilee, with the region of Galilee. It was a type of person who was, who was a, a figure of social unrest, but they weren't social unrest against the poor. The leistes had a reputation for being against Rome or against the powerful. They were an unruly lot who made life uncomfortable for the rich and powerful for the high priests as well as for the Roman governors. And the Leistes were agents a bit like Robin Hood and his band of merry men. They had a folk popularity which was mistrusted by the people of power. And one of the things that the Leistes did in Jesus' time was that they made the roads unsafe. They were thought of as highwaymen or bandits. And of course the roads in Roman-occupied Palestine, were built by Rome. The roads are the Roman source of power. It's how they dominate the land. The taxes come into Rome through the Roman roads, and the soldiers come out of Rome on the Roman roads. Roads are how Rome dominates the regions it has taken over. I live in the country of England, and English landscape and geography has been shaped by Roman domination. There are straight Roman roads that cut across this land and have shaped future generations and will shape generations forevermore as long as there are these straight roads cutting across the land. And this is what's happening also in Roman-occupied Palestine. And Jesus is identifying himself and his people with the types of social class who were seen as a danger to that system. The Leistes were highwaymen. They didn't abide by the Roman peace, by the rule of law that was imposed through domination on the land. They were seen as treasonous to Rome, in fact, which is why at the foot at the cross, Jesus had a Leistes on either side. When he is crucified, there is a bandit, a highwayman, an outlaw on either side of him. When Rome looked at Jesus, they just thought he's another one of those Galilean troublemakers 
who doesn't abide by the rule of law that we are laying down. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus is saying. Do you remember, he's already been talking to the disciples about their, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to have power? How are we going to rule this new kingdom that we're starting? And Jesus says, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't lord your power over others. Instead of being somebody at the center of power, at the top of the heap, I want you to look like an outlaw. I want you to look like somebody on the margins, in the wilderness. Not a figure of power, but a figure of social unrest, dodging and diving, a merry man, not a knight at King Arthur's court. So when you buy a sword, it's because you are looking like a self-reliant, rugged outsider. You don't have Roman military to back you up. You don't have a retinue of mercenaries that you have hired to travel with you on the road. You're not a high priest who's traveling with a whole lot of soldiers to keep him safe. You don't have anyone to keep you safe. You're not part of a big, powerful, dominant force. You're all by yourself in some ways, or you're a loose band anyway, a loosely connected band of fellow travelers. Take a cloak, take a bag of money, buy a sword so that you will be counted as an outlaw, so that you will look like an outsider to the places of power. And then they go in, uh, in verse 38 and they say, look, here are two swords. And Jesus replies, that is enough or enough of that. And here, once again, we see another example. This is presented as, as not an example of Jesus affirming them. It's yet another example of the disciples getting it wrong. Over-enthusiastically latching on to one thing he says, and then perhaps literally taking it without, by, and then missing the meaning of it thereby. And here is yet another example of the disciples enthusiastically running to get their swords because the shit is about to hit the fan and they really want to fight. And he shuts them down. He says, enough of that. Very similar to the way he shut Peter down when Peter says, you're not going to die. You're the king. You're the Messiah. You're going to go to Jerusalem and go from power to power. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. You don't yet understand that the son of man must suffer and die. It's similar to the ways that Jesus will shut down people who are proclaiming him to be the son of God when by that phrase they think he's going to be the righteous hero who kills all their enemies and redeems the land purging it of foreign taint and he shuts them down and he says no enough of that and he does it again here they come running back with two swords and he says that's enough two swords by the way is not going to defeat the Roman army this is not a call to mass mobilization of military strength. This is a call to some sort of symbolic mindset of the people who are being sent out as ambassadors to the movement of Jesus, saying this is when people see you, this is the kind of movement I want them to see is happening around you. And so then Jesus has to put the quash on the disciples' bloodlust, See, it's always happening, isn't it? People always want to kill their enemies. Even the people who knew Jesus personally want to kill their enemies. And so he then leaves and he makes his way to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom, and the disciples followed him. 
And when he arrived, he said to them, Pray that you don't give in to temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed. What do you think the temptation might be? We've just had a story about disciples seeking power. And Jesus talks about, don't be like the Gentiles who lord power over others. We then have a story about, look like an outlaw, someone without power, on the margins of society. And then he says, pray that you don't give in to temptation. And he goes and he prays and he says, Father, if it is your will, take this suffering from me. However, not my will, but your will must be done. It's directly here about the suffering the subjection to power and might and military rule. And what are we going to do about it? And Jesus doesn't want to, but he knows that not my will, but yours be done. This is how I'm going to deal with power and people who want to kill me. A Roman occupied military force, by the way. This is how I'm going to deal with the people of power that want to kill me, not my will, but yours be done. And then an angel appears and strengthens him. The agent of the rule of God appears and strengthens Jesus. He was in anguish and he prayed even more earnestly. Then he got up from praying and he went to his disciples and he found them asleep. Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so you won't give in to temptation. While Jesus was still speaking, a crowd appeared. So the temptation, what is the temptation? Is the temptation to stay to go asleep rather than stay awake? No, that's not the temptation. The temptation here is about this movement that is leading to a point. And the enemies are crowding around and the enemies are out to get Jesus. And he's wondering, how am I going to deal with this in the way that you want me to deal with it? How am I going to do this in a godly, heavenly way? And he says to his followers, be careful. Don't resist, uh, do resist the temptation. Don't fall into the temptation that is about to befall you. And while Jesus was still speaking, a crowd appeared. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. Jesus said, Would you betray the human one with a kiss? When those around him recognized what was about to happen, they said, See? They fell into temptation. Lord, should we fight with our swords? You can imagine their eyes glistening, their gleaming eyes. They get to do it. They get to kill. One of them even tried. He struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus responds, Good for you! You're defending the cause of the unjust with righteous lethal violence. I'm so glad that you are on my side, killing my enemies and striking at them with your swords. Thank you for bringing in my kingdom at the point of your weapon. Thank you so much for enthusiastically bringing up arms in an organized, violent way and using it to decimate and destroy the humanity of my enemies. Well done, good and faithful servant, says Jesus. Oh, maybe that's not what he says. Verse 51, Jesus responds, stop, enough of this. He touched the slave's ear and healed him. He touches the enemy and he heals him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the guard and the elders who had come to get him, all the agents of power ranged around. By the way, the Gospel of John tells us that in this story, when Judas appears with the soldiers, that it's a cohort of soldiers that, he's, that he comes with to the, temp, to the mountain. 
And a cohort is 600 Roman soldiers. And we miss this when we think of Jesus and his 12 disciples as if it's just 12 soldiers who show up to take 12 disciples. But it's not. It's Jesus and his movement ranged about camping on a hill. And there's lots and lots of people there. Remember, there are thousands of people connected to the Jesus movement in some way or other at this stage. And it takes at least 600 well-armed, well-organized Roman soldiers to come and take out Jesus from his mountain. Somebody somewhere looked at Jesus and his people and said, it's going to take a cohort, a cohort of temple guards, a cohort of Roman guards, a cohort, a large mass of high priests and powerful people to take Jesus out. And Jesus says to them, have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me as if I were an outlaw? Day after day I was with you in the temple, but you didn't arrest me. But this is your time when darkness rules. Have two swords so that you will be counted amongst the outlaws. And then Jesus is arrested as an outlaw. And then he is put on the cross next to two outlaws. The, the, the story here is not of collecting your weapons to use them to fiercely defend what is rightfully yours in the cause of righteousness and justice. The story here is to make sure you don't look like a powerful person. Make sure when people see you, they don't see somebody who's backed up by all the wealth and might and organized power of institutions and countries and nations and movements. You're on the other side. You don't look like this. You, When people look at you, they should think that you're some sort of scrubby, scrappy outlaw, not a rich, ruling high priest or a powerful, domineering Gentile governor. And this is the movement that Jesus is leading. And it takes him to the foot of the cross and it takes him up on the cross which of course is a torture device by Rome for Roman treasonous individuals when Rome wanted to show the power and the might of their empire they crucified people they crucified the outlaws they crucified those agents of underhanded scrappy rebellion as a way to try and demonstrate their authority and the story of Jesus is the story of somebody who faced all of that power, all of that overweening religious, nationalistic, empire, political and economic power. And he submitted to it and he let those things kill him. And then he rises again. And that's the end of the story. This buying two swords and killing your enemies and striking at them. This isn't the end of the story of the Jesus people. In fact, it's a tiny little blip. It's a cul-de-sac. It's a teaching moment. And it's one which leads directly to their rebuke and to the healing of their enemies. So whenever anybody ever says, oh, well, Jesus said to buy a sword. Therefore, I'm going to buy a gun and kill my enemies, or I'm going to join the army of my nation and destroy my enemies. 
If anyone ever says that and then uses Luke 22, 35 to 38 as some sort of proof text to justify their love and delight in the destruction of human life to solve a human problem, please just get them to read Luke 22, 24 to 53 instead. Bless you. Be at peace. And I'll see you in the following episode. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.10ththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.